0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. And we've got a news show for you this week. I have a lot to catch you up on, uh, starting with some new Firefox features, uh, either some in beta now, which some of you may have access to. So new features for Windows 10 as well, uh, some privacy-oriented features, which will be very welcome. Got some Google Authenticator news. One of the main reasons that I don't recommend it anymore has been sort of fixed. I'll tell you about that. We're going to update you on Clearview AI. That's the company that was Uh, scraped the internet for all of your social media photos, and then had a facial recognition app that basically tagged you to those photos and was supposedly 99.6% accurate. Uh, We've got uh, lawsuits going on there. I'll catch up on what's going on with that. We've been talking a lot about contact tracing, and Google and Apple have come up with a privacy-preserving method for uh, letting you know if you've been near somebody who's been infected. Uh, but, you know, the best laid plans. Uh, there's actually a lot of other problems with that that have nothing to do with privacy, but all to do with efficacy. And we're going to talk about, talk about that. We're going to talk about Bruce Schneier's take on that. And uh, it really kind of cuts right to the heart of this whole thing. And finally, we're going to talk about Thunder Spy. <laughs> uh, it's another hack with a really cool name. Uh, uh, having to do with Thunderbolt, which is if if you've got a modern PC with a USB-C port on it somewhere, it's quite likely Thunderbolt-enabled, and it's a really interesting hack, but one you'll probably don't have to worry too much about, especially if you've got a Mac. So uh, we'll get into that, and that will lead right into our tip of the week. also gave a uh, presentation to my uh, Osher Lifelong Learning group at Duke, this is a, usually a course I teach twice a year. Uh, this group also does lectures and stuff, and because of the COVID-19 uh, self-quarantining, uh, they've moved to virtual stuff. And so I actually gave them a lecture on some COVID-19 scams and how to avoid them, including some of the privacy issues that we've talked about recently with the contact tracing. And I'll, I'll uh, tell you how to check that out if you're interested after we get through the news. So lots to cover. Let's get right to it. First up, uh, Firefox just keeps adding more and more privacy features. I really, really am uh, liking Firefox more and more. I mean, not that I haven't always liked it and recommended it, but it just keeps getting better. So a couple things, uh, and I'll read a couple short snippets from some articles about this. Uh, First one having to do with private email addresses. Whenever you go to websites now, they always want you to sign up for a quote-unquote free account. And uh, while it doesn't cost money, it definitely causes annoyance. And your information is probably sold to others, so it costs you in that way, too. Firefox now is building in a new service into its browser that it lets you basically generate proxy email addresses on the fly. And so these email addresses are ones you can give out in these forms, and they will route, uh, Firefox will route those to your uh, email address of choice, but the company that you're given the proxy email address to you will not have your real email address. And so if for some reason that company starts abusing your trust and starts, you know, sending you all sorts of crap to that email address, you could just cancel that proxy and all of a sudden all that's gone. And yet you still have your original email addresses protected and they never knew it in the first place. So uh, let me read real quick about this article from ZDNet about this new feature. Browser maker Mozilla is working on a new service called Private Relay that generates unique aliases to hide a user's email address from advertisers and spam operators when filling in online forms. The service entered testing last month and is currently in a closed beta, with a public beta currently scheduled for later this year, ZDNet has learned. Private Relay will be available as a Firefox add-on that lets users generate a unique email address, an email alias, with one click. The user can then enter this email address in web forms to send contact requests, subscribe to newsletters, and register new accounts. And this is a quote from Mozilla, it says, quote, we will forward emails from the alias to your real inbox. If any alias starts to receive emails you don't want, you can disable it or delete it completely, unquote. The concept of an email alias has existed for decades, but managing them has always been a chore. Through Firefox Private Relay, Mozilla hopes to provide an easy to use solution that can let users create and destroy email addresses with a few button clicks. Mozilla now becomes the second major tech giant that's working on an email alias and private relay service. Apple announced a similar email alias feature for its upcoming sign-in with Apple login system last year at the Worldwide Developer Conference in 2019. So yeah, so Apple actually, I mean, there's this, this concept's been around for a long time, and there's actually some services you can use right now uh, that will create dummy email addresses that either only last temporarily uh, or only last long enough for you to get a response. Like so, so many of these things want you to give an email address, and then you have to verify that email address, and then after that, they don't care. Nevertheless, some of these services have become so popular and this may actually be a problem for Firefox as well. Some of these temporary email alias uh, services have become so popular that a lot of sites have blocked them. Like you can't enter one of those email addresses as your email address for them because they know that, they know that the, it's a throwaway email address and that's not what they want. Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how well this works. The sign in with Apple thing is also really cool. Uh, when you're in with Apple instead of signing in with Facebook or Google, uh, on, on your phone. And this service, I don't think it's rolled out yet. When you do that, you can tell it to give it a a junk email address or an email alias address. And it does the exact same thing. So anyway, it's really nice to see Firefox doing this too. Hopefully you can, you know, you can make this an alias for whatever account you want. And, you know, I always try to keep multiple email accounts, you know, some for public spammy stuff and some for private stuff. And because I didn't want my, you know, private email inbox getting crammed full of junk, but this is kind of nice. This this would let you actually do this. There are other ways to do this as well, by the way. Google and some and Yahoo and some of the other services uh, support what's called plus addressing. So let's say your email address was Joe at Yahoo.com. If you did Joe plus spam at yahoo.com, uh, if you gave that to somebody, then any emails that to joe plus spam at yahoo.com would just go to joe at uh, yahoo.com. Google does this as well. You can if you had joe at gmail.com, you could do joe plus spam or whatever, what I usually do for the plus part is I give it whatever, let's say I'm signing up for an Amazon account and I would do joe plus amazon at gmail.com. And that way I know uh, that any place that I get an email sent to joe plus amazon at gmail.com, Amazon gave that away. Hopefully they're only from Amazon, but if they sold that to somebody else, or if they got hacked, uh, then I would know where that came from. Unfortunately, the plus is very easy to see, and a lot of uh, places could just, you know, obviously take that part off, and then they'll have your real email address. But this, this email alias that Firefox is talking about, and that uh, Apple does with their sign-in with Apple, is completely unrecognizable. It's just some gibberish address, probably at iCloud.com or at Mozilla.org or something like that, uh, that that will get routed to your personal email address. All right, one other feature they're they're adding, and this is I'm not sure what to think about this in yet. We'll have to, the jury's still out. Uh, we'll have to see how this works. Um, but I've talked about many times how the, the problem with today's web, the internet, is it's all ad-driven because nobody wants to pay for these services. So they got to make some money somehow. They really do. I mean, this their services cost money. So they have ads, but unfortunately ads have gotten really creepy and really tracker heavy, you know, privacy nightmares. And so, you know, what I recommend to most people is that you just block ads, unfortunately. And so, you know, Advertisers and marketers uh, and publishers, online publishers, are trying to come up with something that works. Uh, and there have been many attempts. Uh, this is yet another one. Uh, so let me, let me read the article, and then we'll, then we'll kind of circle back to the, to the other things that have been done. Let me read this article from The Verge. Mozilla and Scroll, Scroll is the name of a company. Mozilla and Scroll have made an earlier announced partnership slightly more official today with the wider release of a browser extension called Firefox Better Web, It's part of Firefox's ongoing effort to combat tracking on the web, but with a small twist that it includes the option to sign up for Scroll. Scroll, if you don't recall, is the $5 a month service that stops ads from loading on certain websites. It's not technically an ad blocker, but rather lets publishers know they shouldn't serve ads in the first place when you visit. For a limited time, the subscription will cost $2.50 a month for the first six months. The Mozilla partnership essentially builds Scroll into a package of tools that Mozilla offers as a test pilot. The idea is to see how far Firefox can go blocking trackers and other malfeasance, short of full ad blocking, without fully breaking the web or defunding publishers. The extension includes Scroll and also a customized enhanced tracking protection setting that will block third-party trackers, fingerprinters, and crypto miners. It will work across different desktop browsers, but of course it's designed primarily to be used with Firefox. The deal with Mozilla should get Scroll a much larger user base, but neither company would disclose any financial terms. Scroll takes a 30% cut of your subscription fee and pays the rest out to its partner publishers based on your web browsing habits. It tracks those habits automatically and the company tells me that it will soon offer users tools to delete their data, on top of a pledge to never sell that data. Scroll also pledges to make it easier for small publishers to sign up through an automated system soon. Vox Media and The Verge are Scroll partners, but most websites aren't. Now that Mozilla is giving the service some small seal of approval, perhaps that might change. If it doesn't, it would be a little odd for Firefox to so prominently feature this single startup's publisher's payment system. Both Mozilla and Scroll said they'd welcome more competition in a larger ecosystem of companies trying to figure out ways to pay publishers directly. But outside of systems like Brave Rewards, which I'll talk about in a minute, there don't seem to be that many that are viable. Alright, so I'll stop there. So, yeah, so Brave is a browser based on the Mozilla Firefox engine or core software that builds in with it a similar kind of a thing where you pay a subscription fee. And whenever you visit websites, uh, Brave will pay those websites based on basically how long you are on their website. And this is meant to be a replacement for ad revenue, which is trying to get to the same thing. You know, So you go to a web page, you have these uh, billboard spaces that you rent out to advertisers and they fill those spaces with advertising, usually really annoying <laughs> advertising, uh, and based on you know how much time you spend on the web page, and definitely if you clicked on that ad, you know payments go back to the advertisers. But we all hate ads, and they've and the ads have gotten really, really creepy, um, and they they track us everywhere, and so that has to stop. So what these services are trying to do is to come up with an alternate way for these websites to still make money. But it's based on how, you know, whether you go to the site at all and then how long you stay on that site. So you're basically putting money into a pot every month. In this case, $2, $2.50 a month and eventually $5 a month. You pay for the service. And then as you surf about the web, depending on how much time you spend on each site, they give a cut of that money to the, the publishers of, of those websites so they can stay in business and make some money. without, Hopefully without tracking. Now, the downside to this, and I still want to see how this works, is I, I started looking through Scroll. Uh, scrolls privacy policy and it still says and there's something cryptic about yeah we're not going to sell you any data now but we might in the future i'd I'd have to read it to you again but it still sounds like something i'm gonna have to wait and see whether or not it's truly private you could just be trading one tracker for another basically but ideally the way this should work and honestly the advertising industry should work the same way is they shouldn't be tracking you in the first place. They should show you ads based on the websites you go to. And, you know, based on what what the content of that website is, they should be able to have a pretty good guess of the kind of stuff that people going to that website might want to, you know, might want to view. Uh, that's the way ads used to work. But, you know, now they've got to be hyper-tracking and, you know, they really want to track you individually across websites and that's where things get bad. So hopefully, you know, we'll see how this goes. Hopefully this service or something like it uh, will survive. And, you know, then we could find that compromise solution where for a little bit of money every month, In a kind of a flat rate, we can, you know, support the websites that we actually go to. All right, next up, a couple other couple articles I want to read about some Windows 10 features that are coming. I think these are coming in the May release, supposedly, Uh, that's this, that's this month. Uh, So one of them is a uh, potentially unwanted application or a potentially unwanted program Mm -hmm. removal feature. And that's called a PUA or a PUP. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but that that's what they're talking about. So Uh, Another article from ZDNet, let me read this. It says, The next major version of Windows 10 operating system will include a new security option that will allow users to enable a Windows Defender secret feature that can detect and block the installation of known PUAs or potentially unwanted applications. The term PUA, also known as PUP or potentially unwanted program, is one of the lesser known terms in the cybersecurity jargon. It refers to software that has been installed on a computer by tricking the user, hence the term of potentially unwanted. I don't know what potentially is. (laughs) They should just call them unwanted. If I didn't ask for it, then that's unwanted. This includes tactics like bundling an unwanted app with the installer of a legitimate program or by using silent installs to bypass user consent altogether. The category of PUA usually includes apps that show intrusive ads, apps that track users and sell their data to advertisers, apps that change browser settings, install root certificates, or disable security controls. Starting with the Windows 10 May 2020 update, which is set to roll out later this month, Microsoft said it added an option to the Windows 10 settings panel that lets users block the installation of known PUA threats. This capability has been present in Windows Defender for years, but it can only be enabled via group policies and not via the Windows user interface. This feature is turned off by default, so users will have to manually enable it once they update to Windows 10, May 2020. So that that's great. It's built into Windows. I, hopefully it's a good feature. Hopefully it works well. Um, and it's basically it's sort of like antivirus, but it's uh, most of these programs aren't really, well, i call them malware. They're bad. <laughs> I definitely don't want them. But they're not really, you know, viruses or ransomware, those kind of things. It's just yet another way to make money off of you. And, uh, so it's kind of nice that this will be built in. And honestly, I wish they would just enable it by default, but maybe they will down the line. And one more feature I just mentioned quickly, I was going to read an article, but I'll just, I'll just tell you about it. And that is DNS over HTTP support. And actually it's HTTPS. So HTTPS is the secure form of HTTP, which means it's encrypted. And DNS is the domain name server. That's basically, or service, that's the the phone book of the internet. So you put in amazon.com and it comes back with an IP address, that's DNS. And the problem is currently almost all DNS queries, which usually go to your internet service provider by default. So Comcast, Verizon, uh, whoever, you know, mobile or home, whoever your internet service provider is, they basically get to see every website you're going to because you ask them, Hey, where, what's the number for this? uh, What's the number for this address? So every time you do that, they know, Oh, well, Carrie just went to Amazon. So even though the connection, the eventual connection between me and Amazon will be encrypted, it'll be over HTTPS. The initial DNS query to figure out where to send that request, uh, the, the where you know where to contact Amazon, was not encrypted, and that's one of the most gaping privacy holes in the way the internet has been set up for since forever. So I've talked to you about this before. Uh, Firefox has now got this built into its browser, which is great. I think Chrome now supports this as well, uh, and basically. It now instead routes your DNS queries over an encrypted connection to a service like Cloudflare, who does not track you, who does not save any of your information, to look up that exact same info that you would have gotten from your internet service provider. But now they can't, they're not seeing where you're going. Of course, it's still not perfect. Uh, you know, you can do the reverse lookup. If uh, if you can see what IP address I'm going to, you can, if you know, if you know how to convert it one way, you should be able to convert it the other way as well. So it's not 100%, but it's still way better than nothing. And it's great to see that Microsoft is actually going to be building this in, the support it, uh, for this right into the operating system. Again, this is coming up, I think, in the May release of Windows 10 Home. Another quick update uh, for Google Authenticator. So you should be using two-factor authentication as much as possible. Uh, And more and more websites are now supporting this. And the best way to support this is with an Authenticator app. Uh, that you set up, uh, there's a one-time setup per website, and usually you go to the security and privacy settings of your account, and you'll say, I want to set up two-factor authentication, uh, and then it shows you this little QR code, one of these little square barcodes, and you take out your authenticator app on your mobile phone, you scan that QR code, and now you're in sync, and you verify that by entering in a six-digit code to prove that you're now in sync, and from then on, every time you go back to that website, and you're coming from a, you know, a a new computer or a new location something that that website doesn't recognize you from it will challenge you and say okay i got your username and password but i want to take one more one more step a second factor give me the code for this website from your authenticator app so you open your authenticator app on your phone you find the current code and they rotate like every 30 seconds or so they change and you find the current one and you enter that into the the secondary login uh, for that website and assuming that you give it the right number now you're really logged in this prevents bad guys from getting into your account even if they know your username and password, because unless they also have your phone that has that app on it, they still can't get that second factor that you need to log in all the way. Okay. Google Authenticator is probably the most popular one out there, though I, I don't really get why, because it's really not the best. And one of the big, big gaping holes in feature-wise with Google Authenticator is that you you know you put in all these websites, you you sync up with all these websites and you have your, you scan all the QR codes. And now all of a sudden you lose your phone. Well, you've got two-factor authentication turned on for all those websites, but you have no way to do the two-factor authentication anymore because you've lost the phone that has all the codes. There was, there's no backup. In other words, there's no cloud backup of these, of these codes, these synchronization codes, these QR code things that you scan. So what Google did, and it's really the minimum they could do, uh, is they now allow you, once you get the new phone, now this doesn't help you if you just lose your phone, but if you get a new phone and you want to transfer these these QR codes from one phone to another, the, the old phone, the Google Authenticator app, will show you one at a time the QR codes that you can scan. So basically you can now rescan with the new phone each and every website you had before, which is kind of a pain, but at least you can do it uh, before you couldn't do this at all. Anyway, so it's a minor improvement. I think I honestly, I don't know why they don't just go to a cloud backup, but that's why I recommend Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, as my authenticator app, because they do uh, securely back up all these codes to the net so that you can do it from any different device. And if you lose your device or get a new device, it's no problem at all. Uh, It just downloads from the cloud and you're good to go. All right. uh, Now an an update on Clearview AI. Uh, Clearview AI, we've talked about several times, but it's been a little while since we've mentioned them. Uh, It was a very small company started by a guy called Mr. T because I can't pronounce this guy's name. And basically what this guy did uh, is he turned some computers onto the net and went to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of these social accounts that we have, Venmo, you name it, any place where we might have pictures associated with our names. And he downloaded all the pictures uh, and associated with our names. So he had this massive database. I think it was 3 billion photos from the internet. And then he hooked those up to his app, uh, his Clearview app, and said, okay, now if you scan somebody's face, I'll look them up and tell you who they are. So that could be anybody. You could be walking down the street. You could be on the subway. You could take a picture of somebody on TV. And this app would go look through its 3 billion photos and come back and say, oh, that's Carrie. Now, originally, once the, there was a New York Times or maybe it was the Washington Post called them out, I had a big expose on this. And you know the the owner said, "Oh, I'm only selling this to law enforcement." Turns out that was definitely not true. He was selling it basically to anybody, which this article I'm about to read talks about, and they got in big trouble. Um, so in particular, they got in trouble from Illinois, which has a really strict biometrics privacy law. So anyway, th- that's kind of the uh, the background here. Let, let me get in the article, and then we'll talk again on the uh, on the backside. This is uh, from Naked Security, which is Sophos's blog. It says. Clearview AI, the web-scraping, face-print, amassing biometrics company that's being sued over collecting biometrics without informed consent, says it's no longer going to sell access to its program to A, private entities, or B, any entity whatsoever that's located in Illinois. Clearview's artificial intelligence, or AI, program could identify someone by matching photos of unknown people to their online photos and the sites where they were posted. Clearview AI founder and CEO, I'll try it once, Juan Ton That? I don't know, I'll call him Mr. T, has claimed that the results are 99.6% accurate. The company's change of heart was revealed in court documents submitted during the course of a class, class action lawsuit against Clearview that was filed in Illinois in January. It's just one of multiple suits. Clearview is also up against similar lawsuits in Vermont, New York, and California. The Illinois suit charges the company with breaking the nation's strictest biometric privacy law, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA. By scraping some 3 billion face prints from the web to sell to law enforcement and to what's turned out to be a motley collection of private entities, including Macy's, Walmart, Bank of America, Target, and Major League Baseball team, the Chicago Cubs. From a court declaration made by Clearview legal counsel Thomas McClare and filed on Wednesday, it says, quote, Clearview is in the process of canceling the accounts of every remaining user who is not either a law enforcement body or a federal, state, or local government department, office, or agency. At the same time, Clearview is in the process of canceling all user accounts belonging to any entity located in Illinois, unquote. The suit contends that Clearview violated BIPA by using biometric data for commercial purposes and is seeking a temporary injunction that would prevent the company from using the information of current and past Illinois residents for its facial recognition program. BuzzFeed investigations have shown that Clearview has been happy to try to drum up new business by handing out free trials to friends, potential political allies, and hundreds of private companies, some of which converted to paying customers. In February, BuzzFeed reported that at the time, Clearview was working with more than 2200 law enforcement agencies, companies, and individuals around the world, including the US Department of Justice, the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement (ICE), the FBI, US Customs and Border Protection (CBP), Interpol, hundreds of local police police departments, and the National Basketball Association, the NBA. In other words, at least until things started getting sticky with legal and regulatory matters, Clearview threw its technology at anybody and everybody, in spite of Mr. T's having said that, quote, it's strictly for law enforcement, unquote. As of February, BuzzFeed was reporting that Clearview has been aggressively pursuing clients outside of law enforcement, including in law, retail, banking, and gaming and that the company has been trying to gain traction outside the U.S. and Canada by pushing it to Europe, South America, Asia Pacific, and the Middle East. Small wonder that the company's turning tail and running from the land where biometric companies are being forced to their knees over privacy issues. Facebook, for one, has had to face the BIPA music to the tune of $550 million, which, by the way, is nothing for Facebook. That's how much it agreed to pay to settle a BIPA suit brought over the platform's practice of scanning a user's face in photos and offering tagging suggestions. Vimeo is also facing a BIPA lawsuit for storing people's photos without their say-so. How do you block out Illinois? Clearview's attorneys told the Illinois court that the company has blocked all photos that were geotagged as having been uploaded in the state or that have metadata, also known as EXIF data, which I'll talk about in a minute, associated with them with a geolocation within Illinois. They won't appear in any search results the company promised, nor can anybody query the database in a way that will return Illinois images outside of document retention guidelines relevant to court requirements. But as BuzzFeed notes, it's unclear how Clearview will manage to sequester Illinois residents from searches on its database, given that many of the social media websites that have fattened its database with their images, such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, typically strip out metadata from photos once they are posted. As it is, many of those companies, including Facebook, Google, and YouTube, have ordered Clearview to stop scraping their sites. On Wednesday, Clearview also said in an 18-page memo to oppose the preliminary injunction that it would no longer collect biometric data from images stored on servers that are displaying Illinois IP addresses or from websites with URLs containing the words such as Chicago or Illinois. The company says it's also implementing an opt-out mechanism to enable people to have their photos excluded from its database. I'll believe that when I see it. It's taking these voluntary steps to comply with state law, it said, so the judge has no need to grant the injunction, ordering it to leave Illinois residents in peace, free from its face print hoovering. All right, so that covers a lot of ground. Uh, It goes over, it should remind you of some of the things we talked about um, uh, with with Clearview. And it is kind of odd that, I mean, there is no, we have very, very few, if none, uh, federal laws uh, for privacy. And so unfortunately, then it falls to the states to do these things. And Illinois has one of the best biometric privacy laws in the country. And so somehow Clearview wants to keep doing business and they're trying to just somehow exclude all people from Illinois from its database, which will be really hard to do. Now, I wanted to make one one point um, that, I, that I said I was going to make. So photos today, when you take a picture with your phone, embedded with that photo is a bunch of metadata, which is data about the data. So it's data about the photograph you just took, you know, including kind of photography related things like, you know, what aperture what size the image is, any filters that were used, that sort of thing. But it also, today in modern phones, contains uh, geolocation, basically GPS coordinates of where that photo was taken. A lot of people don't realize that. So when you are uploading images somewhere, uh, you know, not to get creepy, but you know, the, the the worst case situation is you know you're uploading pictures of your, you know, your three year old or six year old child's birthday party at a local park, thinking it's anonymous. You didn't put any names to it. But all of a sudden, you know, the creeps out there can find out where that picture was taken and, you know, maybe start hanging around that park. You know, I don't know. I I don't know how often that actually happens, but it does happen. And that's why you got to be careful. And that's why some of these services actually strip out the location information before they, you know, post that thing. I'm sure they're keeping that information for themselves, but the version of the photo that they put on your Facebook timeline or whatever, uh, has that information removed. Okay. So anyway, long story short, Clearview is, uh, being taken to court and, uh, hopefully you know, they will, frankly, be shut down because it's it's just a travesty, um, though it's because we have no regulations that, that companies like this get away with this. All right, moving on. Uh, I've talked a lot recently about the Google uh, and Apple contact tracing framework that they put together to, uh, to preserve people's privacy. And, you know, we've talked about the privacy aspect of that system, and it, it does work really well. Um, it's done quite a bit of good. They really did a good job uh, focusing on privacy by design, uh, privacy built right into the system and no more information being captured than is absolutely necessary. However, that's just one aspect of this whole system. And it really doesn't get to the, the heart of whether or not this is really going to be effective way of uh, doing contact tracing. And Bruce and I are minced no words, uh, getting right to the heart of why this is going to be a problem and why, despite all the privacy issues, these apps probably are not going to work unfortunately, because we honestly do need some help. Um, but anyway, let me, I just want to read a little uh, clip from a blog article from him where he actually quotes himself being quoted by some other sites. And he, you know, he explains why this is really not probably going to work the way we hoped it will work. So first of all, he's quoted from BuzzFeed. And his quote from there was, my problem with contact tracing apps is that they have absolutely no value. I'm not even talking about the privacy concerns. I mean, the efficacy. Does anybody think this will do something useful? This is just something governments want to do for the hell of it. To me, it's just techies doing techie things because they don't know what else to do, unquote. He goes on to say, I haven't blogged about this because I thought it was obvious, but from the tweets and emails I've received, it seems not. This is a classic identification problem, and efficacy depends on two things, false positives and false negatives. First, false positives. Any app will have a precise definition of a contact. Let's say it's less than six feet for more than 10 minutes. The false positive rate, is the percentage of contacts that don't result in transmissions. This will be because of several reasons. One, the app's location and proximity systems, based on GPS and Bluetooth, just aren't accurate enough to capture every contact. Two, the app won't be aware of any extenuating circumstances like walls or partitions. And three, not every contact results in transmission. The disease has some transmission rate that's less than 100%. Part two, false negatives. This is the rate the app fails to register a contact when an infection occurs. This also will be because of several reasons. 1. Errors in the app's location and proximity systems. 2. Transmissions that occur from people who don't have the app. Even Singapore didn't get above a 20% adoption rate for their app. And 3. Not every transmission is the result of that precisely defined contact. The virus sometimes travels further. And he doesn't say this, but I mean, it could also be on surfaces, right? So, you know, somebody who's infected, touches their mouth, touches a a table, walks away. Somebody comes up, touches the table, touches their mouth. Now they're infected. Their phones were nowhere near each other. All right. So back to uh, his blog post, he says, assuming you take the app out grocery shopping with you and it subsequently alerts you of a contact, what should you do? It's not accurate enough for you to quarantine yourself for two weeks. And without ubiquitous, cheap, fast, and accurate testing you can't confirm the app's diagnosis. So the alert is useless. Similarly, assume you take the app out grocery shopping and it doesn't alert you of any contact. Are you in the clear? No, you're not. You actually have no idea if you've been infected. The end result is an app that doesn't work. People will post their bad experiences on social media, and people will read those posts and realize that the app is not to be trusted. That loss of trust is even worse than having no app at all. It has nothing to do with privacy concerns. The idea that contact tracing can be done with an app and not human health professionals is just plain dumb. So, not mincing any words, Bruce gets right to the heart of the matter. And you know, again, though I I will give massive kudos to Apple and Google for coming up with a privacy protecting way to do this. It's just that at the end of the day, there's a lot of problems with the implementation. You know, like Bruce says, there's going to be a lot of false positives and false negatives. These these systems aren't perfect. They're not going to exactly be able to tell that you're within six feet of somebody or that there may be a barrier between you and that person and that contact will not guarantee a transmission. Anyway, so there's all sorts of ways it could fail. And once it starts failing, people aren't going to have any trust in it. And, you know, for this to be effective, I've read, I think that we would need to have at least 60% of people install this application. And there's just no way we're going to hit that number. So it's one of those things that looks great on paper, but in reality, it's just probably not going to work the way we want it to. All right, now for the big story of the week, and that is Thunder Spy. (laughs) Uh, This article is going to get kind of technical, and I'll break down some of this at the end. Um, uh, But it makes some other points that I want to make sure that I get across, and it's still interesting to know about these kind of things, and it will definitely lead into some tips of the week, uh, things that you can do to protect yourself against this and things like this. So I'm going to read an uh, excerpt from an article from Apple Insider, so it's kind of Mac-focused, but it does talk about both Macs and PCs. And by the way, this... Really, currently, is only an issue for Windows and Linux-based devices. Uh, Apple devices have built-in protections that protect against this. Though, if you're running an Apple, there are ways on a on a Macintosh to actually run Windows or Linux under a, a thing they call Boot Camp, which basically lets you dual boot your machine into either Mac OS or Windows or Linux. And in that case, if you're happen to be one of those people that do that. When you're in Windows mode or Linux mode, then you are still vulnerable to this. But most Mac users will not be. Okay, so let me read the article, and then we'll talk about uh, some of the points made in here uh, at the end. A security researcher has discovered a Thunderbolt vulnerability. I guess I should stop there. Thunderbolt, I I, I mentioned earlier on, but Thunderbolt is the brand name for a high-speed data transfer mechanism built into the USB-C port uh, on your computers. And that's the little reversible USB. It's a, it's the it's small USB thing that plugs in either way. You don't have to figure out if it's upside down or not. It always goes in the same way. It's this long. It's this overlooking thing. And almost all Mac Macintosh, and modern Macintoshes have these now exclusively. Uh, and a lot of uh, modern uh, laptops have them as well. So let me start again. The security researcher has discovered a Thunderbolt vulnerability that could allow attackers to bypass system defenses and access the contents of a locked computer's hard drive in minutes. Developed and maintained by Intel, Thunderbolt is a common port standard found in millions of consumer PCs, including Apple Macs. Certain features of the Thunderbolt interface have raised concerns among security experts for years, however. On Sunday, Bjorn Rutenberg, a security researcher at Eiden. Uh, Eindhoven University of Technology, published details about a new vulnerability he's dubbing Thunder Spy. With just a few minutes of physical access and a couple of hundred dollars of easily purchased equipment, the vulnerability could allow an attacker to bypass a computer's security mechanisms, even if it's locked and its hard drive is encrypted. The process involves unscrewing the back plate of the laptop, interfacing with the Thunderbolt controller with a single board computer, like a Raspberry Pi, rewriting the controller firmware, and disabling disabling security features. As a result of the exploit, Rudenberg was able to bypass the password lock screen on the device in just five minutes. It's a good example of what security experts call an evil maid attack, which refers to types of hacking that require physical access to a device, such as a laptop left alone in a hotel room. The vulnerability, which is unpatchable by software, affects all Thunderbolt-equipped PCs manufactured before 2019, though macOS devices are only partially affected. That's because Apple's Mac OS uses its own security mechanisms, such as a device whitelist, memory virtualization, and uh, kernel direct memory access protections. And don't worry about those terms. Basically, it just means that Apple did some work ahead of time on its computers because it makes both the hardware and the software to protect against this. Vulnerabilities at Intel's Thunderbolt connector standard aren't new, and researchers have long been concerned about speed-enhancing features like more direct access to a system's memory. In early 2019, researchers published a flaw dubbed Thunderclap that would allow USB-C or DisplayPort devices to compromise Mac or other PC systems. In the wake of that vulnerability, researchers recommended that users take advantage of an Intel security feature called Security Levels, the exact mechanism that ThunderSpy allows attackers to bypass. Intel claims that it addressed the vulnerability last year, but Wired, uh, the Wired magazine, but Wired found that its security fix hasn't yet been widely implemented in many machines. Rudenberg has also created a tool called SpyCheck for Windows and Linux which allows consumers to test whether their machines are vulnerable. If they are, he recommends disabling Thunderbolt ports entirely as the only way to mitigate the flaw. In practical terms, attackers won't be able to disable the macOS lock screen and perform other attacks like they could if they had physical access to the device, as long as a user is running macOS instead of Windows or Linux via Bootcamp. Macs running Windows or Linux on Bootcamp, however, are just as vulnerable as other PCs. Exploiting the vulnerability on macOS is still going to require physical access to a device, and since the scope of attack is more limited on Apple's software due to built-in protections, the average macOS user is at lower risk than those that run Windows or Linux. It's really only going to be concerned for already high-risk individuals. While most macOS users are going to be largely safe from most of the repercussions of this vulnerability, it's still a good idea to avoid plugging in untrusted peripherals or storage devices, and control of physical access to devices remains paramount. Okay, so there were a lot of technical terms in there. Uh, basically, this Thunderbolt port is a very fast data transfer port. It's a it rides on top of USB. <laughs> i know this is confusing but basically it lets your computer talk to monitors and other things including getting power which is nice all through one cable but because of some kind of techie things that intel built into this thing to allow even faster access it kind of bypasses some protections that are supposed to be there in the operating system and my understanding is the way this works is when you you know even if your hard drive is encrypted when you log in with your password you have access to all your files. So if your computer is simply sleeping and not really turned off, if somebody can come up and plug in uh, a cable and do this special thing where they um, they change the, they open up your computer and change the, the little firmware on the, on the Thunderbolt port, they can then basically read whatever's in memory because it's already decrypted because they're basically kind of bypassing the login screen to get whatever uh, is already going on on your computer right now. But if your computer's turned off, then uh, then this should not be possible. So the long and the short of all of this is, is m- most of you probably do not have to worry about this um, unless you're a really high risk target. If you're carrying something around your laptop, if you're a CEO, if you're a politician, if uh, you're rich and famous uh, and you leave your laptop unattended, you could be a target for something like this. And with really, and I've read the complete details of this, we're really just a, a couple hundred dollars worth of materials and a screwdriver you really could do this in just probably about five minutes. The other place where this might come into play is if you're at the border uh, traveling internationally and either coming in or out of the U S or whatever country you happen to be in, if they take physical possession of your laptop for some period of time, you would have to assume that they at least had the capability of getting into that laptop. Now, again, that would only be if it's, uh, if it's not turned off, if it's sleeping or locked, that's when I believe this is uh, vulnerable, but Again, the bottom line that I want to get to, and this leads into my tip of the week, or actually will have several tips here, is physical security of your computer. Uh, and That is making sure that your computer is resistant against what we call the evil maid attack. So the evil maid attack is you have a computer in your home, uh, your maid is in your home cleaning, you're not in the same room with the maid, but the maid is in the same room with your computer. And given enough time and physical access to your computer they can hack it they can find some way to pull data off of that uh, computer or they can find some way to inject malware that is the evil made attack and traditionally you know most security experts will say if somebody has physical access to a computer you're pretty much screwed you know certainly if you're talking three-letter agencies like the cia or the nsa you know, probably the fbi or you know other international ones like G- uh, gchq yeah if those kind of uh, agencies have got physical access to your computer you're going to be hard pressed pressed to really protect it. Now, if you really do have a fully encrypted hard drive and that computer is turned off, you should be in good shape, but there's still lots of other things they can do uh, if they're physically present and have physical access to your computer that they could not do remotely. All right. So tip of the week, let's get to the actual tips of the week. So these are, these are some things you should do on your computer for computer security. And actually I just, just rewrote chapter five of my book, which covers all this uh, coming up for the upcoming fourth edition. And here are some of the key tips there. First of all, make sure you have a password on your computer accounts, even for home computers, even for your desktop computers at home. Uh, Again, evil mate attack, or it could be an evil guest attack, um, or a nosy teenage son or daughter attack. All of your computers should be password protected. And I would say that every one of your computers should have an account on that computer for every user of that computer. You should not be sharing accounts. And furthermore, Uh, None of the regular, personal, everyday usage accounts should be an administrator account. There should really be just one or just maybe a couple administrator accounts that you do not use on a daily basis. The administrator accounts are basically the quote unquote God accounts that can do whatever uh, can be possibly done on a computer. They have access to this. And the reason you want to not use an administrator account on a daily basis is because whatever you can do, malware can do. So if your account Gets infected by malware somehow. Uh, if you have an admin account, then that malware has admin privileges, and they can do whatever they want to that entire computer, every account on that computer, every every setting on that computer, they can change. Uh, years ago, I read an article on Windows, in particular, that said that I think 90% of malware problems would be either com- uh, would either be completely blocked or significantly mitigated had the user not had an admin account when they got infected. So to recap, every computer you have should have uh, an account with a password. There should be an account per person uh, and there should be uh, one admin account or at least uh, the regular personal accounts that everybody uses on a day-to-day basis should not have admin capability. You always have to have at least one admin account, but that should be one that you do not use on a regular day-to-day basis. Next up, hard drive encryption. Definitely use it. It's uh, it's it's there on every Mac. It's called File Vault. If you go into the Security and Privacy settings, you can turn that on. It may even be turned on by default by now. You won't notice it. It doesn't slow anything down. There's absolutely no reason not to do it, and all sorts of reasons you definitely want to do that. So make sure you enable file encryption on your Mac. Unfortunately, on Windows, it's not as easy. On Windows 10, Windows 10 Home, which is the the cheap version that everybody has does not come with uh, easy full disk encryption software built in. Uh, that's called Bitdefender, and to get that with Microsoft Windows, you have to have the more expensive pro versions of Windows, unfortunately. I personally think that's a travesty. I think that should be built into every, even the most basic Windows should have this built in. Now, Windows 10 Home does have something they call device encryption, Uh, It requires a Microsoft Cloud account in order to use it, and it's only available on certain PCs with the hardware that supports it. So in in my estimation, it's pretty much worthless, um, unfortunately. But hopefully Windows will start including this on all computers. The Bitdefender uh, should be included on all. If you really want to get a jump on this uh, and can't wait for that, and your computer doesn't support this device encryption option, uh, look at VeraCrypt, V-E-R-A-C-R-Y-P-T. It's free, it's open source, it's very secure, and it can be used to uh, encrypt your entire hard drive. All right, next up, be sure that your computer auto-locks. Um, that is, you know, after a certain amount of time, your screensaver should kick in, uh, and then it should require a password to get back into your account. Um, if it's a home computer, you know, you can maybe set that to a longer period of time, like, you know, 10 or 20 minutes or something. Uh, but for a laptop, particularly one that you take outside the home and, you know, might be unattended for even... You know, 30 or 60 seconds as you walk to throw something away and come back to your laptop, you definitely want that to lock much sooner. For a laptop, I would say you probably want to keep that between two and five minutes. And then on top of that, you really need to get in the habit of closing the lid or locking your screen before you walk away, because it really doesn't take long for someone to, uh, to get into your computer and do something malicious that will live <laughs> uh, for much longer than their access time. They can basically come out install something on your computer and walk away. And then from then on, you're, you're vulnerable. So there you have it. There's a series of tips that will help keep your computer more secure, especially even in the in the, the case of the evil maid attack. And of course, this and many, many other tips can be found in my book. All right, that's going to wrap it up. We had a lot to catch up on today. Thanks for hanging with me. Uh, we will have some more interviews coming up soon. Can't guarantee if there'll be one next week or not. Uh, But I've got some other ones in the works that should be coming down the pike soon. As always, I would love for you to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're getting this from. It's always a big help. And spread the words to your friends and family. Share this up on your social media. And uh, I would very much appreciate that. Uh, Like I did mention at the top of the show, I recently gave a lecture to uh, the Duke Ollie crowd, uh, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, uh, about COVID-19 scams and such. Uh, You can find the link to that lecture uh, either in my newsletter which is going to come out which comes out every other Sunday or in the uh, show notes for this podcast. You can go to podcast.firewallstonestopdragons.com, find this uh, find this episode and you'll find the link to it there. It's a slide presentation, it's about 45 minutes long for the main presentation and then I take about 15 minutes worth of Q&A talking about a lot of the scams that are going on right now uh related to COVID-19 but also some very good general uh, security and privacy tips as well. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up for this week. We will be back, of course, next week. I hope everybody's staying home and staying safe. Uh, I know we're kind of doing this maybe phased reopening thing, but, you know, at this point, I think we're still probably better staying at home and trying to uh, keep this disease from spreading, regardless of what our particular politicians are saying. So as as I've been saying recently, stay home, stay safe, stay healthy, and don't get caught with your drama showdown.